Today's reading from God's Word will be from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. If you'd like to follow along in the Bible found in front of you in the pew, that'll be on page 1026. At 2 Corinthians 3, 2 and 3. You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Good morning. I know many of you that are on this side of the auditorium are very worried that I'm speaking this morning because the last time that I spoke, the air conditioning on this side of the auditorium broke down. And so... Please be sure that you're good and comfortable today. We've double-checked that, and the air conditioning is not going to break down. And I remember that day because I was sweating to death up here uh, on the podium. The reason I'm here today speaking to you, David Shannon is, is fine and well, and he's not ill or anything, and he's here. Uh, but today, as many of you know, is Bible Class Emphasis Day. And uh, this day is a very important day, as our Bible classes are very important. It's a wonderful thing that we come together and we worship God in here in song and through speaking His Word and talking about His Word and through prayer and taking of the Lord's Supper. But our Bible classes are where we build relationships, where we come together, where we study God's Word. And that's how we strengthen our faith is through the study of God's Word. And we're going to look at a lesson this morning uh, that I think does that. And so this morning you're going to have a little bit more of a Bible class lesson than you normally do a sermon because I don't have that talent. Uh, I don't really have a great talent for teaching either, but we're going to go through the Bible. And we're going to be very busy looking at our Bible this morning. Uh, I do have an announcement that was asked to uh, give you by John Michael Kennedy. Uh, Community Giveaway Day information is located in the foyer at Information Central. So please get that. It has information about what to bring, when to bring it, all those details. John Michael has worked very diligently uh, on this project to make it a success. It's going to be very well organized, and I believe it's uh, the end of September, the 29th. I'm not missing that uh, wrong when that day will be. So please be looking at that. Get that packet. If you have any questions, you can email John Michael or call up at the office, and he'll be glad um, to help you with that situation. As you go to Bible class this morning, many of you guys will have a planned event. Either you're doing something special today for Bible class or having a meal together, doing something to emphasize that. Uh, and even our children's classes, those of you that will be teaching our children's class this morning, make it a special day and remind the folks in your classes, adult teachers and children's teachers, of how important it is that we study God's Word and the relationships that we can build. The relationships that some of our children are building when they're in the four-year-old class or they're in the fifth grade class or they're in the youth group with Philip are going to be relationships that will anchor them to church to come back. If someone doesn't feel like they have any friends or companions or trusted relationships in church, then they may shy away from that when troubled times come or when they go off to college uh, or maybe they have changes in their life or difficulties. So just be aware of that. Think about that today. Look around your Bible class and think about people you need to build your relationships with. Those of you that are visiting with us this morning, we're so glad to have you here with us this morning. Please make an effort to go to a Bible class uh, this morning. There's pamphlets out at the, in the foyer about where different Bible classes is. They're generally kind of divided up in demographics. Uh, but you're welcome. If you want to, you can even stay in your seat in this auditorium. And you'll have a wonderful lesson from one of our elders, Pat Hackney, on the book of Genesis. 
Next week, we're going to begin a special curriculum in our Bible class that will run for four weeks, looking at the relationships primarily in the home, husbands, wives, and marriages, and how we need to keep them sanctified and set apart and holy for God's work. So we'll have a four-week lesson on that, then after that, the classes uh, will do whatever lessons they want to do there. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. I know we had our reading in 2 Corinthians, and we're going to begin our lesson in Genesis chapter 6. Those of you that are in a pew Bible, that's an easy one to find. It's on page 7. It's not very far into your Bibles. Those of you that know me very well know that I have a great passion for the books of the Torah, or the first five books of the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible. I love them. I don't love them for their historical value. I love them for their spiritual value. And if I had a dollar for every book and argument and discussion and talk that I've heard or seen on the story of Noah and how it regards to history or archaeology or whether or not it really happened or how much the flood covered, if I had a dollar for every one of those I heard, I could shore up Social Security for the next 50 years. If I had a dollar and I had to feed myself every time I've heard a lesson or seen a book or heard a discussion about the spiritual value of the lesson about Noah, I'd probably be a whole lot skinnier than I am now because I'd probably go pretty hungry. When Paul tells the church in Rome in 15, 4, uh, Romans 15.4 that these lessons are here for our learning, I don't believe he's talking to them about their historical value. When I look and see when Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, we know that the scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for many things, primarily for training people up in righteousness it doesn't say training people up in archaeology. It doesn't say training people up in history. And if you love that, there's value to that. But if you miss the spiritual stories that the Hebrew Scriptures have to teach us, you have misread those Scriptures. In Genesis 6, 5, we begin to see the story about Noah and the flood. And there's something that happens before the flood. We're not going to talk about how many days it rained in here and all that stuff. We're going to talk about the time leading up to the flood. And Genesis 6, 5 gives us a description of that. In Genesis 6, 5, it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I'm not a scholar of Hebrew, but I try to look up some of the words and see what they mean. And that word wickedness that we see in 5 means evil or misery or distress. And the word great means it was exceedingly abundant. And when I look at that line, it says, every intent of the thoughts of his heart. If you stop and read that, that's kind of hard to understand when you look at it. So I kind of changed it in wording that I can understand, kind of like Steve Hale used to say when he was here in Cornbread English. It says, the whole purpose of the plans of his inner being, man was rotten to the core in our language today. Everything, their inner being, not everything about them, their heart was evil all the time. And that evil there is the same word as used for wickedness. And that continually means from sunset to sunset. 24 hours a day, the heart of men were evil. And as I say those things and talk about those things, many of you may be like, man, that's just like it is today. The thoughts of men are evil all the time. I don't watch the evening news. So I'm not real up on current events and things like that. I don't watch much news at all uh, on TV because for the most part, it's not anything I really want to hear. I should probably. Maybe I understand more about the world and it'll make me a better minister. But I don't watch it very often. But I'm not 
foolhardy enough to believe that our world is not full of folks whose evil, whose thoughts are evil continually. And we'll fast forward a little bit to Jesus' time, to Luke chapter 6. You want to turn with me there in Luke chapter 6? It's on page 911 in your pew Bible. We're going to look at Luke chapter 6, and we're going to look at verse 45. We're going to see what Jesus had to say about evil thoughts and man and the things that were on his mind. Remember, we've just fast-forwarded several thousand years here to Jesus' time. The world is a different place than it was in Noah's time. The world is a different place than it was in Ezra and Nehemiah's time, just 500 years before this. But Jesus, in this sermon, he says in Luke 6, 45, he said, A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I've read this verse many times, but I failed to realize that word treasure is said twice. And I never really think about treasure as being something evil. You know, we think about that. We think about something treasure, it's always something positive, something that's a plus, something we'd like to have. I got to thinking about Jesus talking about where we're supposed to store up our treasure, whether it be here on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves can steal, or if we lay it up in heaven. But we see that there was a good man with a good treasure in his heart, and there was an evil man with an evil treasure in his heart. And this word treasure here means a deposit, kind of like in the sense that we put something in a bank on deposit. What is deposited in your heart? What is it you hold so dear in your heart, like you do maybe the money you have in the bank or the possessions that you have? What do you have on deposit in your heart? Because Jesus Christ says that whatever's in your heart abundantly will be what will come out of your mouth, what you'll say, what you'll do. And I got to think about, well, what was in Noah's heart? Because we're going to look in a minute and see how Noah was described. He was surrounded by a world of evil. A lot of times us Christians... Today, well, we Christians today, we think we can't be good and we can't be pure because how can we do it in a world that is so corrupt, so steeped in sin, so terrible of a place to live? How can we do this? How can I store up treasure in my heart when every time I turn on the TV or, or go to the movies or see people in the workplace and they're all about sinning? They don't care anything about God. How can I do that? And I'm going to challenge you to say that you absolutely can't. Because I'm going to tell you that the Bible teaches that the world we live in today is not as corrupt as in the days that Noah lived. And the evidence of that fact, we'll see in a couple of verses, is that Jesus hasn't come back yet. And Jesus is going to tell us in Luke 17 and Matthew 24 that in the days that he's going to come back will be like the days of Noah. When all mankind just did whatever they wanted to do. They went about their business completely. And we think about just in this story of Noah. How many righteous people does God say there were in the world? One. We don't know anything about Noah's wife or his children or their wives that they're righteous. You know, there's eight people that were saved. We're not told, but about one of them. And when we look at the subsequent story after the flood about one of Noah's sons, Ham, we have question about his righteousness and his behavior and disrespecting his father. Only one. I look and see a whole lot of righteous people in this world today. I try to look at the good things. I'm kind of a pessimist a lot about a lot of things that comes from working for the government. But if you come and look and look at people and the relationships that I know in this world, this congregation, 
There's not just one righteous person. There are lots of righteous people. Turn with me to Luke 17, verses 26 through 30, just a few pages over. I didn't do the Pew Bible page. I figure if you could find Luke 6, you could find Luke 17. In Luke 17, 26 through 30, it says, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, and they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Jesus had just been asked a question about the Pharisees about, hey, what will the kingdom of God coming be like? And Jesus said, it won't come by observation. Then he began to speak to his disciples with the lesson we just read there. And in verses 31 through 36, Christ gives details about when he comes to call his people, Christians, home. We see a similar story in Matthew 24. We're not going to read it, but... Jesus has been talking in Matthew 24 about the coming destruction of the temple that would happen about 40 years later at the hands of the Roman general Titus uh, under the rule of the Roman uh, leader Vespasian when it would be destroyed and the Jews would flee to the fortress of Masada and eventually all die there from being laid siege to. He's telling about terrible things that will come in their time and then he moves the discussion to the things that will happen in the days before he comes again. And we see those two great examples. Noah... And the corruption that was around Noah and the world, the Lord destroyed it by flood. And then Lot, in kind of a more microscopic view in the city of Sodom, and the evil things that were going on there, that even the Lord's angels were almost, you know, tried to take advantage of by the people of the homosexual tendencies of those in Sodom. And the Lord destroyed and wiped out that city and only saved a few. Not even Lot's entire family was saved. From that. We know from the Bible that Lot had sons-in-laws and other daughters that were not, didn't escape with him, his wife, and his two daughters. And we look at the story of his wife who even turned to look back. She kept looking back at the things God asked him to flee. Folks, in our world today, we look at politics, we look at different things that are corrupt in this world. And I'm going to tell you something. We live in a time where Satan is active about destroying the church, about destroying Christians, about destroying our nation, people all over the world. But this is not new. Kind of like Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. We think dirty politics is something that's new to America. In Christ's time, the Romans had leaders. They weren't called emperors. That's kind of a name that we've assigned to them. That name doesn't exist in Latin. But they were called princeps sunatus, which means they were first among the Senate. And of those first 11 guys that were known as Caesar, Julius Caesar was actually never Caesar. But those men who had that name... They didn't lead a great life when it came to politics. Only four of them died of natural causes. Two committed suicide and the other six were murdered, either by political rivals, their own bodyguard, and one was even suspect of being poisoned by his own mother. And that kind of trend goes on for the next 400 years of the Roman Empire. Dirty politics aren't something new that's going on. Homosexuality and adultery, sexual perversion are not something new to 21st century America or adultery and sexual sin wouldn't be mentioned in any other problem in the Bible, save maybe false teaching. This is not new to us today. Turn with me over to 2 Timothy chapter 3.
We're going to look at verses 1 through 4. Oh, I apologize, I didn't tell you. That's on page 1057 of your pew Bibles. Second Timothy is a letter written by Paul to Timothy, and it's probably the last inspired epistle we have chronologically in the Bible. And he's warning him about things that are going to come that are going to damage the church. Mainly false teaching, lies, hypocrisies, false prophets, things that are going to come. Men are going to come and try to pervert and destroy the church. And he warns Timothy here. A lot of people look at 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 4 as something that's going to come in the future. There would have been no reason for Paul to instruct Timothy on something that would not happen in his lifetime. And when the Bible speaks of the last days, brothers and sisters, we are in them. And Timothy was in them. There's not going to be another age after this when Jesus comes back. So he warns Timothy. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. We read this list and some of you may say, that sounds like the world we live in today. Guess what? It was the same world that Timothy lived in as well. It was that that world was free from sin and free from perversion and free from attacks on God's word and attacks on God. Even the leadership of the time of the Roman world would persecute the church on and off for many years to come in doing these things. And I look at this list and some of the things that are on it bother me because I know some of those things exist in the church. And since Paul was writing to Timothy about protecting the church, that meant some of these things were going on in the church as well. I want to tell you something, brothers and sisters. The same hell that's reserved for those who are sexually perverse is reserved for those who are gossips and slanders and put division into God's body. That's what God's word has to say. So when we condemn people for doing things that we may put in certain slots of sin that are going to destiny for hell one day, be sure that backbiting and gossip and slander and division and dissension are not part of your repertoire of life because the same hell that's reserved for those people is going to be reserved for those who practice that as well. Let's run back to Genesis chapter 6. If you didn't keep your finger there, it's back on page 7 in your pew Bible. We see in verse 6 of chapter 6 a painful story. And it says, And the Lord was sorry that he made man on earth and he was grieved in his heart. That word means that he felt pain in his heart, at his beautiful creation. Here we're not very far in our reading and our lessons in Genesis about the beauty of God's creation, the wonderful things, the things we pray about and thank God for, for the creation of man, especially in that beautiful pinnacle of creation, the last thing that God created, woman, that we men need as helpers to get through this life. We've read that beautiful story, and then we come here in Noah's time, and God is pained in his heart that he even created man. But we see a little bit of positive side in verse 8. We see that Noah has found grace and favor in the Lord's eyes in doing that. And God tells Noah, and we see it expanded on in chapter 9, that he's going to establish his covenant with him. And he says here, I'm going to destroy this world, Noah, and I'm going to give you some instructions on how you'll be saved, how you can be saved from this coming destruction. We see that the destruction of this evil world was imminent. So God said, I want you to build an ark, a boat, a ship, whatever you want to call it, and he gives Noah the dimensions for it. He gives him specifics. This is how I want it 
to be built. He doesn't tell Noah to go consult shipbuilders of the time or to build it however you think works. He built it and said, Noah, I've designed this thing. I want you to build it exactly as I have said to build it. And he tells him what to gather inside this ark. The righteous Noah and his family and then animals. We see two of every unclean and seven pairs of all clean animals are gathered. He gives them specifics about what to put in there. It's interesting he doesn't tell Noah any possessions to put in there or to go home and gather up the, your, your possessions that you look at and you like and put them in there. He gives them specifics. And in verse 22, it says that Noah did everything exactly as God commanded him. He doesn't ever put up an argument. He doesn't say, well, God, I don't know if that's big enough or that's the right size or that sounds like a lot of work to do. He does ex- everything exactly as God commanded him. And in chapter 7, we see that this ark is a vessel of salvation from God. That God said, I'm going to put righteous Noah in here. Now, Noah was not perfect. Noah is listed as being blameless in his generation. Noah wasn't a perfect man. He wasn't without sin. But he was righteous in his generation. The snapshot we have in Noah's life doesn't mean he was just good then. He had lived a righteous life. And I say that because of the evidence of when God told Noah something to do, he was prepared to do exactly what Noah said to do. And that's how we need to be today. If you're practicing righteousness, if you're practicing a life of being a Christian, it's easy to do or easier to do what God says to do when he says to do it. And then God says, get in the boat, Noah. And again, Noah didn't walk around. He didn't go down to the market, pick up some last minute goods. He got in the boat. And he did exactly what God told him to do. Turn with me to page 1069 in your pew Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. In verse 7. Our man Noah here is memorialized in what we refer to sometimes secularly as the hall of faith in Hebrews eleven seven. And I want to draw a parallel to the ark and Noah to us today. Because we see here in, verse, in, in chapter of Hebrews 11, verse 7. It says, by faith, this means by trust in God and acting out what God says to do. By faith, Noah being divinely warned, like we read, of things not yet seen. It hadn't started raining yet when Noah had to build the ark. Moved with godly fear, respect and reverence for God's commandments. Prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. He became heir of a covenant with the people that God cut with him in Genesis chapter 9. He was saved and did what he said. What if we looked at the church, the body of Christ, like we look at the ark? What if we looked at ourselves as Christians like Noah? What if we were Noah? And I think that we are. Not just you as an individual, but the people that occupy the body of Christ, the human beings that are inside that body of Christ. We talk about the world being evil and stained and corrupt and all those things. Who are going to be the righteous, the blameless among that generation, among our generation today? It better be the people in the church. It better be the people of the Lord's body. And we look at the church itself. It was designed by God. It was planned and foreseen by God before the creation of this world. Even before he created man, even before he flooded the earth, the Bible tells us that he had a game plan in his mind for the church. That he, he had this plan for people's salvation uh, in his mind. And we're called out of this world to be different, to be blameless 
among this generation. And that's not what it means you're going to be perfect. Paul was not perfect. Paul calls himself the chief among sinners when he writes to Timothy. And he wasn't perfect before he was baptized and he wasn't perfect after he was baptized. But now he describes himself in Philippians as being in regards to the righteousness of the law, blameless. That kind of sounds proud by Paul of saying that. We look in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the elders that lead the Lord's church on earth are to be blameless. That doesn't mean that they are perfect. It is a lie that the devil teaches Christians to convince you that because you stumble in sin in your life, that you are ineffective for the Lord's work. Every Christian is going to sin. And if you were bored enough to read my bulletin article this week, I talked about this a little bit more, so I'm not going to talk about it at great length here. There's a difference between committing sin and practicing sin. We are going to commit sin. We are going to fail before God. Now, if you begin to practice sin instead of practicing righteousness, if you're walking in the darkness instead of walking in the light, you've removed that covering of Christ's blood. I'm not talking about that. But Satan will try to convince us that because we have some sin in our life because we do wrong, that we're a failure before God, that you can't do his work. Committing sin does handicap us. Sometimes it hurts us. Getting into a practice of it means we've fallen away from God in doing those things. But don't let Satan convince you that because you make mistakes that you're ineffective and you're worthless for the Lord's work. That's a lie. That Satan, we always think Satan is going to tempt us with just things that are black and white that we can see right before our face. That's not true. Satan is smarter than anybody in this room. And he's been tricking people for a long, long time. He fooled Adam and Eve. And they are those who heard God's voice directly out loud. Who knew what it was like to be in the presence of God. And he was able to trick them in just a one-minute discussion on doing that. So don't ever think you can outsmart him. But know that he's going to come and do that. In our reading this morning, we talked about we are Christ's epistle to this world. Folks, they're not going to get it any other way. This world is not going to get it unless it comes from Christians today. That's no different than the world that Paul lived in. They weren't going to get the message of God's word unless people came and told them about the message of God's word. Until they saw the dedication of Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Priscilla and Aquila and other people that were dedicated to the service of God's word. Were they going to get it? Flip over to 2 Peter chapter 2. And I want to look at verses 4 through 9, a little bit more of comparison to Noah, and then we're going to quickly finish up. It's interesting what he describes here uh, as Noah. In verses 4, 5, and 6, he says, For God did not spare, in this is 2 Peter 2, For God did not spare the angels who sinned and cast them down into hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness. Now we don't get that in Genesis, but he's called here a preacher, a messenger, a herald, one who announces righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemn them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. Now in 2 Peter 2, Peter's talking about the false teachers and false prophets that will face destruction because of their unrighteousness. And he says, the God didn't spare the ancient world, and he didn't spare Sodom. He's not going to spare this world today either. The end is coming. We see in verse 5 that he saved Noah, the preacher of righteousness. In 7, we say that he delivered righteous Lot, 
from destruction in Sodom. And verse 9 has a promise for us. It says, Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of the temptations and reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. There is a plan for our deliverance from this world of sin, from being encumbered by the things that Satan wants to lay on top of us and lay on top of us. There is a deliverance from a sinful world in the message of Christ. Over in first, uh, turn over 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I told you we were going to look around a lot. It will be more like a Bible lesson than a sermon. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, preceding these verses, he's talking about the lessons that were learned by those who didn't trust God completely, who tried to do things their own way uh, and, and, and didn't follow God. He namely talks about the people of Israel in doing that. In, 10, in, uh, in chapter 10, 12 and 13, there's a therefore there. So whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, back up and read what it's about. And it says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No, over, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful and he'll not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God says we're going to be tempted. The Bible says let no man say that he's tempted by God. God's not a tempter. He allows us to be tempted. And when we withstand temptation through the way out that God provides, that is a way that you can be a letter, an epistle to people. Because people are watching you, Christians, at the moment of truth, at the time when it comes time to make a decision about right or wrong. That's when they're watching you. That's when they're watching you all. Like, oh, hey, what's Tim going to do? What's Joe going to do? What's whoever going to do when it comes time to either lie and gain money or to fall down or it comes time to go do something they shouldn't be doing or be active in activities they shouldn't do. Let's just see how he acts. Let's see if they walk the walk and talk the talk. And I failed at doing that myself and doing those things. I'm not going to ask you to turn to him. We look at Romans chapter 5, 8 and 11. It says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us that in it, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the reconciliation. God has provided a method of salvation. He's provided a way that we can get out of this evil world. But the important thing is that while we are here, we're either going to die in this fleshly life or Jesus is going to come back before that happens. And that's going to be the end of the age. And that's going to be the end of our time amongst being around the perverse and corrupt generation, quote unquote, that we live in. I'm not saying that to say that the world is full of people that are not worth the gospel of Christ. I'm saying that to say the whole world is full of people who desperately need the gospel of Christ. And if you are going to be the letter, the epistle that Christ has, the instruction that people have, the example that they have, we have to be cautious about how we live our life and how we make those decisions. Have a hope. You know, this world is in despair. A lot of people have no hope. But we as Christians have a hope of heaven. And that's not a hope of saying, I hope that happens. Or maybe that's going to happen. Or boy, it would be great if that happens. You can know you're going to heaven. You can know that promise and it can give you confidence. It can give you a great hope in knowing that this life is not the last place 
uh, that you have. Back over to our reading in 2 Corinthians 3, and we'll finish up. It's interesting to look at the words around these verses. We talk about the epistle written on our hearts. Paul compares that epistle and says, this is not the letter of the law, the old law that, that condemned and killed the flesh. This is the spirit that gives life. When you look on in verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, it's interesting in 6, he says that he made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Those words say it all. We are ministers. That means we are servants. That word is the same word as translated deacon in many places. We are servants of the new covenant. We've bought into a deal with God. He says, if you'll put on my son in baptism, become a member of the church and walk circumspectly before me and obey my commandments, I'll deliver you into heaven one day. When, when Jesus comes back, he'll bring you before me in heaven one day and you'll be declared righteous. You'll be justified before me. But it's a two-sided contract. While we live on this earth, we are servants of this new covenant. And we're not given too many difficult commandments, really. I'm thankful I live under the Christian law and not under the law that was given to Moses because it's a whole lot more difficult to follow and understand. We're given commandments that are pretty easy to follow. And of primary importance of that is to share the joy that we have through the gospel with those in this world. In verses 14, backing up in chapter 2, in verses 14 through 17, another interesting description that's given of Christians. It says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, talking about the ones who are perishing, we are the aroma of death leading to death. And to the other, those who are being saved, are, we are the aroma of life leading to life. It's interesting in 14, he says, God who leads us in triumph, that's victory in Christ, and through us diffuses the fragrance of the knowledge of God. It is through us that people are going to smell the word of God, that they're going to get that beautiful aroma of the word of God. It is through Christians. It's not going to be through some miracle that's worked. It's not going to be through God appearing in the middle of downtown Nashville or Mount Juliet and, and giving everybody a great spectacle. It is through Christians that we're going to do that. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 21, we see a comparison of baptism to the floodwaters of Noah. I see a comparison in the Bible to the ark being the church, being that which contains the righteous. Not righteous because of your own deeds, but righteous because you're in Christ, that you're clothed with Christ, that you're surrounded with Him. And it says, it's now it's baptism now saves us the antitype of the water. Water brought destruction in the time of Noah. Today, the waters of baptism bring salvation. It, it's not because this tub behind me has some magical water in it. You know, those outside the church say that we teach that it's a work. That man can't be saved by works, but you teach that baptism is how you be saved, so you're saying you have to work your way into heaven. We see from the book of Colossians that it's God who circumcises off that dead flesh when we're buried with Christ in baptism. It's not David Shannon or anybody else that baptized you. All they're doing is helping you get back up and out of the water. There's nothing magical about that water. That water came from the same faucet and the same water treatment plant that the water you drank this morning with your coffee came out of. It is God that does the work in salvation, not mankind. 
Mankind can preach the gospel. They can study with people. They can convince people the truth of God's word. But only, like it says in Acts chapter 2, it is the Lord who adds people to the church. So I'm not here today to teach you, if you're visiting with us or considering baptism, that anything the members of the Mount Jewett Church of Christ do are going to put you into heaven. It's going to be God. In the waters of baptism, when you're buried like Christ and rise in the newness of life, just like it talks about in Romans 6, that it's that where the old self is put off. It is God who circumcises away that old flesh in the waters of baptism. I hope that you look around you today, if you're not a Christian with us, and you see a whole lot of epistles, that you see a whole lot of letters that teach us about God's Word, that teach you about Christ's Word. If you're thinking about that, if you want to know more about God's Word and what it has to say about becoming part of that new covenant, being a diffuser of God's Word in this world today, you can come in a few minutes as we stand and sing, and we'll be glad to study with you. And we'll find out more about what God's Word says. It's not something you should rush into not knowing what you're doing, because if so, you may fall away quickly. Or understand what God's Word has to say. It's not an emotional decision. It's an emotional thing you go through, but it's a spiritual decision. It'll be the most important thing you do in your life. If you're ready to be baptized, you have studied God's Word. You realize that you're not pleasing God living amongst the outside generation. That you want to be part of those who are righteous within the church. You can come as well and we'll be glad to help you with that. If perhaps you were in Christ and instead of just committing sin from time to time and making mistakes, you've begun to practice sin. It's begun to lead you instead of God leading you in life. If it's become what is dominant in your life, it's what your active walk is, then please come and we'll pray with you. You can confess your sins before this congregation. You can confess your sins one to another. You can confess your sins to one of us here up in the front and doing those things. And this church body, this group of letters and epistles, be glad to pray for you and put their arms around you. If we can help you in any way, please come as we stand and sing.